when Ash asked me to look at this particular subject this afternoon, I, I almost danced. <laughs> it is such, I, I love this subject. I love this subject uh, because it kind of gets right underneath of what it is to live today shaped by faith. And I think one of the things that the rhythm of life as a title suggests that we start to think about is we all live within a rhythm. We definitely do. There is a rhythm to life for all of us, whether we believe, whether we're considering belief, or whether we don't believe. So everyone here, no matter where you are in that kind of um, trajectory of experience with God, you will live to a rhythm. The, th the thing that I see the Bible is encouraging us to do is, is not to have our Christian faith if we do believe. And if you are considering that this faith might be something worth believing, it's not a bit to stick on the side. Rather, it shapes every part of our life. We actually, we, we see life through a new lens. We consider life in a different way. I think it's the most thrilling and um, empowering and life filled with worth to consider the Christian faith. Because ultimately, as we work through this, this afternoon, I think what we will see is what it delivers is actually hope. There is hope. That's one of the great themes uh, of the Bible. But here's the reality. Our rhythm of life is hard. It's just hard, isn't it? Work, whether that's paid employment, whether that's unpaid employment, whether that's the things that you know that you have to do, the things that are making demands on you, it is hard work. It doesn't always go the way it ought to. And also, I think, particularly being pointed at and challenged in our culture today, is this experience that we feel that no matter what we do, we're, we're causing problems. And we face a hopeless task. Yesterday, down in London, uh, Extinction Rebellion ran a, a, another campaign. It's called Unite to Survive, the big one. You know, one of the greatest inventions that humanity has experienced over the past hundred years, in my view, is the invention of plastic. And it's also one of the worst. The idea that this amazing structure that can suddenly produce all sorts of incredible, life-helping, life-saving things can also be microplastics that for a decade we put into our toothpaste because we thought it would make our teeth whiter. And then we realized that it was never destroyed and entered into our oceans. Do you see the, do you see the contrast? Many of us will be working in, exp, in, in jobs where we are doing stuff, where we feel as though we're, we're both contributing 
to a better world and at the same time contributing to a worse world. That's the challenge of, of, of life. The subject that we're looking at this afternoon, I think, is that we are called to be cultivators. What's a cultivator? What is cultivating something? It's taking an idea and cultivating your thoughts so it might be something better. Taking your skills and cultivating better skills. And it, obviously it comes from the, the kind of foundational idea of growing. If there isn't cultivation, we all die. Literally. There's no food produced. Because we rely on cultivation. We rely on this process. And so today what I want to do is almost... Um, it's almost a whistle-stop tour of what it means to live as we are called to be cultivators within the complexities of the world that we live in and the challenges that we face. It's almost trying to place ourselves in this big story. And hopefully what I want to do this afternoon is persuade you that the Christian faith is a big story which we find our place in, and where our life which is shaped by that faith doesn't just observe that big story, it becomes a part of that big story. The story of God in the world. The story of redemption. So the first thing that we see is it's, it's hard. Our two readings today really took us on a journey I've called it, called it in my notes, first step that we're going to take. We're going to take a progress to hardship, which sounds like, how do you progress to hardship? Well, maybe when we see where we finally get, maybe we'll understand why there's a progressional step. It starts so incredibly well. We are made, our identity is to be cultivators. I'll tell you now, jump onto any kind of self-affirming social media um, platform, and what you will be encouraged to embrace, actually, if you read a whole load of kind of certain perspectives on our kind of work-life balance, needing our Christian faith and what's priorities, you'll get this idea that work is not your identity. Work is not our identity. There's a sense in which that is true, and there is a sense in which that is profoundly wrong. Look at how we are made in Genesis 1, verse 28. We are made to be cultivators. 128, God blessed them. The way the Bible describes our creation and relationship with God is God blessed them and said to them, your identity, your purpose, your reason for existence is this. Be fruitful. Increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every, every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, that rule over, is it, it, we lose a little bit, bit of nuance with that in the way that we read in our English, rule over it. What it actually means is be custodians, be guardians, be cultivators, creators. 
It is in your hands to do well with. In other words, here's the thing. God places us in a world and He says your identity is to be like me, a worker. And you know what? You will find satisfaction in it. You will find yourself filled with, with meaning and purpose. You'll understand why you are here when you realize that you are here to do this cultivating work. It's great to do stuff and to see results. Very, very rarely happens for me in the garden. But I believe that for some people, they actually enjoy the toil of the garden and then seeing the results. Where they see the outcome, they see the fruit. I love the fruit, but I don't like the work to do it. But here's here's the idea. That there's so many things that we do that, that we take as leisure now. We find them our enjoyment and our relief. And yet they're the very things that we are called to do. To, 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 to cultivate. To nurture. To grow. That is precisely why solitary confinement and inactivity are truly punishments. Because to do nothing with nobody is the worst of human experience. We are made to be cultivators. And we, you know, we look at that, we look into the, into the possibility of that, and all of us say, I, I kind of see the idea, but it's an ideal, which isn't real. It doesn't really work like that. And within two chapters, we see the reason why the ideal, the joy and the satisfaction of being a cultivator is shattered into pieces. Genesis chapter 3, 17 to 19, we see what is described in theological terms as the curse. Humanity has rejected and rebelled against God in a place where they are called to be cultivators, where it is not hard, where it is satisfying, where it is a joyful existence, where it is filled with purpose, meaning. We have rebelled against God, and those things that we are called to do now become difficult. God said to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed because of your decision. Through painful toil you will eat food from it. All the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. There's a few really fascinating things that I see there. The reality is that those very things that went before, that were satisfying and joyful, we have to now carry on doing them. 
They're not taken away from us. Cultivating remains. The work remains. The task remains. But what's happened is that the task, which was once satisfying, is now difficult and hard. The thing that we once enjoyed, we now endure. And it's rooted right at something really deep. It's rooted in, in, a, in a battle of will and purpose and focus, which we see explained in Genesis chapter 3, where humanity tempted by Satan rebels against God. As one of, I think one of our great contemporary poets has said, this rebellion finds root in that moment. He puts it like this. I was created at the dawn of creation. I am temptation. I am the snake in Eden. I am the reason for treason. Beheading all kings. I am sin with no rhyme or reason. The words that he says there, and that's kind of jumping on the back of what Paul says in Acts chapter 17, where he says, I've listened to some of your poets, and they say things which are kind of true. But you know what? They don't quite get there. What that poet is saying is that behind all of those horrific things that go on in human experience is me. I am behind that. But where it's wrong is this. Sin is not without rhyme or reason. It seems chaotic. It seems as though it's just out of control. And our human experience says it is out of control. But sin is not without rhyme or reason. It is very deliberate. And it is very purposeful. It is very vindictive. It is very pointed. And it is very hateful. Because it is a determined. To disfigure, to deface, and to abuse, and to shatter the relationship of those who are made in the image of God with the God who made them. Don't ever think that sin is this chaotic, without purpose thing. It is absolutely with purpose. It is determined to disfigure and abuse those who God has pointed His love towards, who, who were created in his image, who had a unique identifier in all of the cosmos, created in the image of God, marked to be, to be jealous of in status. And so sin and the temptation and vindictive behavior of the evil one is all pointed to disfigure those made in the image of God. Which is why we see in Genesis 1-3 to this, this constant relationship made in the image of God conversation going on, which is ultimately challenged. I hate you. Satan, Satan didn't try to win us onto his side so that we might love him instead of God. 
He wanted to destroy the ones who God loved. That's the purpose. There is rhyme. There is reason. And straight away we see if we are called to be cultivators in this world because we are, because we're told to carry on working, to carry on cultivating food, to carry on developing human experience. We're still told to go and multiply and to flourish in the world, but we're going to find the world difficult now. And so we're called to carry on that journey now, but with a new mission. To redeem what is now broken. To point it back towards the One who loves us. To be part of the redeeming work of God. Because God works in the job of cultivating redemption in this world. We are invited to participate. That's why I find the Christian faith so satisfying. All of the pieces for me seem to drop into place. Our salvation has a purpose. If we come to that realization that God is doing something amazing in this world to turn around the very thing that is broken at the beginning and to restore a world of beauty, if that's God's purpose, then we're invited to participate in that journey. That's our salvation journey. One of the verses that I think speaks most powerfully about that is a verse that we so often reduced to something which is a part of it, but is not all of it. It is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's John chapter 3 and verse 16, and it says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You, you'll know, many of you will know that verse. God so loved the world that He gave His Son, You know the word that is used... I I knew I wouldn't be able to say this properly. (laughs) The word that is used for world. God so loved the world. What do we think about when we hear that verse? So often we think, God so loved the world, the people, the people who believe. But that's not the the word that is used. The word that is used is cosmos. I think, John, nothing is wasted when God inspires His his writers. Nothing is wasted in the words that He uses. He could have said, God so loved His people that He gave His one and only Son. God so loved His church God so loved His disciples. God so loved His followers. God so loved those who believed on Him. But it doesn't. It says, God so loved the cosmos. Everything. Everything that He has created. He loves. And He gave His Son for that. 
Really? God gave His Son for that? I thought, thought Jesus died on the cross so that we can be saved. That is absolutely 100% fundamentally true. We would not know salvation without that work. But that work has a purpose. Because the cosmos, the restored world, includes those who love God. We reduce it and we only think about people. But when we expand it and we say, God gave so that all of this will be redeemed, all of this will be restored, we are on a whole other plane of thinking in terms of who we are and what we are about as believers in Jesus. We're on another level of how we understand what Jesus has done in this world. And then we realize, because we carry on on our journey of the Bible, where Peter explains to us that the cross was not a kind of response by God to Genesis chapter 3. As though God, God suddenly has the sidestep of humanity rebelling against Him and therefore dreams up the idea of the cross to save us. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1 and verse 20, Jesus, He, was chosen before the creation of the world. But He was revealed in these last times for your sake. Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world and Peter writes to people who have recently had Jesus revealed to them and he says he's been revealed to you now for your sake and he says to us today through those same words Jesus has been revealed to us for our sake but the purpose was before the creation of the world because, because God is not doesn't have to respond to the sidestep of humanity in rebelling. God always has the purpose of the glory of the cross, the way that we really know how much He loves us before the foundation of the world. Because that tells me that He's about the work of salvation even before we realize we need it. What an amazing God. What an incredible story. What a, an unbelievable, in one sense, story to convey to us. Would you ever think that you would, you would conceive of the idea of salvation being worked out before we've even been created and rebelled against God? And then God says to you, I want to present to you today this Jesus, this Jesus, and say to you, you can, through Him, be invi invited to participate in the cultivating work of redemption in this world. The very purpose of the cross is to save people so that in one sense in eternity, as it unfolds through the storyline of the Bible, Eden is restored. That's the rallying cry, you see. 
of the gospel. That's the greater hope of the gospel. That the hopeless, seemingly impossible task of of extinction rebellion (laughs) is not going to be worked out by lying in the road or splashing paint on old masters or gluing your hands to museum pieces in spite of whether I think that might be appropriate action to bring to light the need to do stuff. I look at that and I think if, if our hope is in that, if our hope is really in somehow managing to adhere to a set of policies that reduce climate warming by 1.5 degrees by 2050, is it? don't know whether I'm right there, but that's, there's numbers all over the place. If that's where we are, I feel hopeless. But the work of God in redemption is the restoration of a broken world. A world that is restored and which we can be part of. That's huge stuff. And then Jesus comes along and he says, what does redemptive work look like? Because that just is too big, isn't it? It's kind of, it's just enormous. (laughs) Thinking about that huge stuff. I can't relate to that on a day-to-day basis. What does Jesus say on a day-to-day basis about what redemption looks like in practice, redeeming works look like? He says this, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus zooms it right the way in and he says, redemptive work looks like behaving and living differently. And it also means that to do that, do you see all the technology in that verse? See all the technology? It's not obvious. (laughs) But it is if you live in the ancient world where the only way to get cold water is to dig really, really deep. And so you need the technological advances to be able to dig really deep, to be able to get a a cup of cold water, to be able to draw it out of a very deep well where the water is cold and not hot on the surface. You don't want cold water in cold weather, you want cold water in hot weather. That's the picture that Jesus is painting. And he says, to do that is a whole load of work. There's redeeming work. We're not still in Jesus' day. We're not scrabbling around trying to stay warm in bad winters. Technology has moved on. There has been redeeming work. What Jesus is saying is already some of that work of the hardship of thorns and thistles, some of that redeeming work has already been done. You as humanity are progressing. But one of the ways that you express your progress is through good works. And, and that, leaves me, that leaves me with one real challenging question. Are we, are we as humanity in this, in this journey of human progress, in this cultivating work, 
so that we're able to do things like get cold water, so that we're able to do things which are better today than they were yesterday, where pain and suffering is alleviated in humanity, are we by ourselves? Does, does, does God just kind of cast us off and say, work really hard? Work really hard. I, I, I'm washing my hands of you, it's all down to you. You just carry on. You just get on and try and work it out. Try and be better. Some sort of Herculean fight against the gods. Is that where we are? Work it out and try to be better? The amazing, amazing thing is, God guides every technological development that has seen humanity progress. We know that from the Bible. Isaiah chapter 28, 23 to 29. You know, I remember when I read this, it was only about, no, I've read it over the years, but it was only about five or six years ago where I, when I read it and somebody explained to me what it actually means. What it actually means is, listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he has leveled the soil, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? What's, what's happening here? We're reading that humanity in the time of the writer of, or as Isaiah wrote, humanity has progressed in its, in its battle against the thorns and thistles of Genesis 3. And it understands more. It understands how to plant certain crops. It understands that you till the ground in certain ways for certain crops. Where's it come from? Verse 26, his God instructs him and teaches him the right way. See that? God instructs the farmer on how to, plow, to plant seeds. Then how to process them. Talks about whether you use sticks or wheels or, or rods to then process the seeds. You do different things for different seeds. I found that just mind-blowing. Look at how it concludes. Verse 29. All of this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. God doesn't lead us, doesn't leave us to just get on with it and work it out ourselves. It's the opposite. He leads us. Theologians have understood this for centuries, millennia. Thousand years probably. The, the term that has been coined for it is what's called common grace. There is a way that God's goodness, His grace, pours out on humanity and His goodness instructs wisdom and learning. I was talking to somebody this morning about, about all, well, we were playing around in the shallows of how amazing the cosmos is. And it just struck me whether the standard model is right or not. Some of you will know what that is and will de debate with me afterwards. 
whether the standard model in physics is right or not, I'll tell you this. Whatever it truly is, God wrote it before we discovered it. When we discovered atoms, God had already created them. When we understood how to create a vaccine against COVID, Isaiah 28, it is God who instructed it is God who guided. It is God who gave humanity the wisdom. And here's the thing. Every technological advancement that we, we discover and we build on, isn't, it, isn't this true? We can use it for good or evil. And we're called to be redeemers of the world no matter what we do. Whether we work without being paid, whether we work in paid employment, Everything that we do has the possibility of advancing goodness in the world and being a redeeming factor in the world. I was thinking about this as I was preparing it. It just went off in my mind. Something as boring as insurance. <laughs> insurance is an amazing concept. It basically says we understand when, we, when our ships sail across the seas that it is a dangerous thing and some of us will be bankrupted because our ships will sink. So what we do is we all pay a little bit in together and we share the risk so that all of us can continue to prosper and not one of us is crushed. It's an amazing concept. And then we twist it into all sorts of the most horrendous, humanity-sapping, draining patterns of commerce. I don't believe that there is anything that has been discovered or created that hasn't had the possibility of redemption in the world. Well, here's the thing. Our opportunity as believers is that we can be part of that journey of turning everything that we do in the work that we do for the possibility of good. The tiny things. The little things. The walking into the office or onto the shop floor and not abusing the person that you sit next to, but working with kindness. Because working is a place... Being in work should be a place which is good. And yet we fight against a tide of bad. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, don't you realize that the struggle that you have is not against flesh and blood. It's right back to what that poet understood behind everything. There is the, the insidious image destroyer who is wanting to crush humanity. And we have the possibility to work as believers in redeeming. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this day and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is the struggle that we face every day 
in the work that we do. To be redeemers in the things that we do and not contribute contributors to the, ones who, the one who wants to crush humanity. Is this hopeless? Where does John 3.16 and Jesus on a cross apply to the cosmos? Is it ever going to get better? Paul makes it so, so clear of the connection between the cross and redeeming the world in Romans chapter 8. He says this, we know that the whole creation, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Isn't that beautiful? Paul ties in Romans chapter 8 the fact that the creation is groaning as we are groaning because we're looking for something better and both through faith in Jesus Christ will be redeemed. That's the hope. That's why Jesus came. Because God loves the cosmos. And He always intended for a beautiful physical world to be filled with people who worship Him. Who love Him. And who enjoy Him. That's our opportunity. To be redeemers. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 says this. Thanks to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphant procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. I, f I find that verse amazing. We are spreaders of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. A beautiful aroma. It should be that our redeeming activity spreads that goodness because Jesus is at the head of the procession from when He first came, when He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, He is at the head of the procession until He re returns again. And it is our opportunity. It is our calling and it is our hope to be re cultivating redeemers in this world.